You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We're still Making our way through, what are we, Samuel, Second Samuel? <laughs> yeah, Second Samuel. We're going to be here for a while. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, no doubt. I mean, we took us a long while to get through First Samuel. I just look at my notes. When I packed them up, I've got like that many, and it's just, they're continuing to grow. <laughs> it's about four inches for those who aren't seeing things through YouTube. <laughs> so, yeah, it just, there, there's just so much to track down and decide whether or not you're going to include this little bit or that little yeah. bit. Yeah. So well, the good the good news is we're not really on a time crunch here. This is what I like about doing the podcast above teaching for a college class because right, yeah, you've only got one semester. Yeah, sixteen weeks is not enough time to cover any book of the Bible, and a lot of times they wanted you to do like Old Testament lit. I I can't even do Genesis in sixteen be, weeks. You might be able to cover the genres, <laughs> pretty like, much. That like that's. Basically it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, that is the one nice thing about, well, there's lots of nice things about the podcast to over teaching in a classroom. The only thing is I, you don't get to see who you're talking to. That's the only thing mm-hmm. I, I don't like about podcasting because it is a lot of fun to just, you know, watch a student or a classroom of people, their eyes light up and you don't get that payoff. So that being said, you know, y'all get, the listeners can send us comments and stuff. That's about as close as we're going to get. Yeah, so. so- <laughs> That being said, send us comments. Let us know what you think, how things are going. So, but uh, <laughs> into the Bible. Let's into let's the Bible. Yeah, we left at the end of chapter three. David had just embarrassed what's the who's it Joab? Joab yeah, uh, for killing Abner. Yeah, and and had allowed Joab to remain alive and was going to still make total use of Joab's uh, abilities because he was a good general and. Uh, Joab's going to be very I mean, except important. for the murder thing. I guess he was okay, right? Well, you know, if you're a general at that point in time, you know, murder might just be part of the job description. Uh, possible. <laughs> so, yeah. A little bit looser idea on what was proper uh, when it came to defending your country back then. Uh, not as many courts and laws to have to uh, deal with. So, yeah. Right. So, Abner, he's gone. He's dead. Um, he had already broken, brokered that tentative agreement between the tribes. And so now... The only thing between David and the throne is Ishbosheth, and David had made no move to re- you know, remove Saul and his sons from power before. He was content to wait and mm-hmm. see what happens. And the same is going to be true of Ishbosheth. And um, but it seems like the people aren't content to wait. So we're going to get into the story of how Ishbosheth gets taken out of the picture. So verse one. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard Abner died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all of Israel was dismayed. So, you know, nice little pithy description of the, the attitudes. But the Septuagint, I thought was interesting. They're the only ones that add the names. In the Masoretic, it doesn't add Ishbosheth's name. It's just Saul's son. Hmm. They don't even care enough about who he is as a person because he's not important as a person. Everything he's done while he's been reigning has not contributed anything to the the nation's well-being or, you know, helping further the uh, mission of the king along. 
The only reason why he's there is because he's Saul's son. So as for courage fail, their courage failed. It, this is um, one reason why I love the Hebrew is because it's it's very picturesque, mm. and it's literally his hands sank. I'm sorry, it's not. It's referring to Ishbosheth specifically, and so it, it gives us this idea that you know, he's just so overwhelmed. He just he can't even raise his hands to do anything. And we're going to see actually in one of the Psalms we're going to go through later where David talks about God and says, you know, his hands are high, his right hand is high. And this idea of having high hands is strength, but when your hands fall, mm-hmm. then you're just weak and helpless. And it, you know, kind of gives you the idea that he's losing his grip on power and courage. So when we think about why this was, because Ishbosheth and Abner uh, had not parted on good terms, so they, they really seemed to part on very... Uh, hostile terms, you have to wonder why the death of Abner wasn't a comfort to him, because now, essentially, this threat to his throne had been removed. Mm-hmm. But you kind of get this idea, if, if it's going to bother him, that maybe he had hoped for reconciliation, um, maybe he thought he could still count on Abner's protection, and you know he may have even thought that this was David's first strike against him, and he may not have understood that David had nothing to do with it. He just knew his general was dead after going to Hebron. Sure. So it, it makes sense. Now, all of Israel was dismayed. This Sometimes the ESV is kind of a little restrained in the way it uh, presents, th- right. presents ideas. It's more of they were shocked. They were terrified. Dismayed just sounds like, you know, somebody spilt something on the rug and upset them. But Yeah, the JPS says alarmed. Alarmed is closer. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, they could believe that uh, at this point it was very plausible that that their oppression as a nation was the result of not having a strong leader. And we see that like when the judges, during the era of the judges, whenever the other uh, nations came in and oppressed the nations— Uh, oppressed Israel, this idea of having a strong leader to rise up and protect them was very much at the heart of the nation's desires. And this is why they had asked for a king was to get that strong leader for defense. And so the people knew Abner was the strong leader and he was the defender, not Ishbosheth. And so his death on its own would have been terrifying enough, but his death specifically at Hebron would have made it seem like David had been the one who orchestrated this. So we're um, told in verse 337, the, the chapter we went through last week, that, yeah, all the people appreciated the fact that David had mourned. But mm-hmm. we need to remember, again, when you're looking at the biblical use of the word all, we're talking about everyone present and everyone who is in- impacted in that moment. Sure. So to get the news from Hebron back to Ishbosheth. There, there's no telling how long that took and what details kind of filtered through. I mean, we all know what it's like to get information that's kind of spotty and, you mm-hmm. know, this person says that. And so for him to get the full story would have taken some time. And that all at 337 would not have meant that all of Israel appreciated what David did or that all of Israel felt comforted and approved, uh, approving of David's uh mourning over Abner's death. It just meant those there. And so now Ishbosheth has to be brought into that truth. And so 
this idea of fear is very central to Ishbosheth's death because his death illustrates how fearful the people had to be of the situation to want it rectified and how far they were willing to go to change this kind of limbo that they were in mm-hmm. as a nation. So, well, and and this is also interesting. I know I've mentioned this. I can't remember when I mentioned it before, but in Matthew two, where the wise men tell Herod about the you know the new king of the mm-hmm. Jews, and it says uh, Herod Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And it's kind of interesting. You have a this new king coming on the scene, and everyone's bothered by it. Well, you know, um, we can look at modern day illustrations today. We we just had an election. We just had an, have a new president, and this is not a comment on anybody's politics, but just that transition. Well, yeah, every time there's a new president, mm-hmm. everyone has fears of about the economy, about justified or not. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's it's something that that is true because we don't know what that new leader is going to mean. Right, and so. It, when you've got someone who can affect your livelihood, and a king definitely could, because you got to remember, a king didn't have a constitution to hold back power. Right. So this guy could come into your home and take everything. He could, you know, take your sons for for soldiers, your daughters for sex slaves. The king had absolute power within his rule. Mm-hmm. So a mm-hmm. new king was. 10 times or 100 times more frightening than anything we've experienced in our, our lifetime with this transition of power. Right. So, verse 2. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of the raiding bands. The names of one was Bana, and the name of the other was Rechab, the sons of Rimon, a man of Benjamin from Beroth. The Berothites fled from Gitaim, and they had been sojourners to this day. So we get a lot of information about these guys. Uh, we're introduced to basically two of Ishbosheth's top men. They're raiders. Remember, Abner and Joab were raiders. They went out to mm-hmm. raid the val- uh, villages and towns to bring in some income for the the troops. Right. So they have a very similar role. the The primary duties in in plundering uh, these towns were were to go specifically to towns that were not under the king's pr- uh, protection. And so these were guys that were entrusted to go far distances, get things of great value, and bring them back to the king. So this is kind of, this is a significant position. This isn't something you dole out to the guy you don't trust to take on great amounts of responsibility. We're also told that Baroth was uh, counted as part of Benjamin, and that they are of the tribe of Benjamin. So this is Saul's family. Now, the original Barathites who lived in this area before Israel moved into Canaan, uh, they are not, they're not connected to Israel. But we're told in 2 Samuel 21, 1 and 2, again, a little bit of information that's withheld until we need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're told that Saul had put the Gibeonites to death. And so what happened was when Saul... Um, put the Gibeonites to death, the Barathites probably fled from their original lands, which was in that same area, and it left the land free for um, the Benjaminites, the the people from the tribe of Benjamin, to, to live in that area. And so the writer inserts this detail now, because this is what he does. He gives us information as he thinks it's pertinent. He wants us to know that Banna and Rechab's father is referred to as being from Baroth because he lives in that land, not because he's a descendant of that land. Okay. And so 
this means that his sons are also, they're not just Saul's generals or Saul's uh, soldiers. They are part of Saul's family. And so we're supposed to understand it's Saul's family that turns on him, not David, and none of the men under David's hmm. command. So very, you know, the writer's been very careful through this whole story. If you go back to that first episode, or not episode, but chapter, where David uh, encounters Saul and he can kill Saul and chooses not to, the, the writer has made it very clear David does not want to kill anyone from, from Saul's family, and this is still continuing. Right. Now, verse 4, the, the writer uh, shifts focus very suddenly, and he's got something he's remembered he needs you to know. So it says in verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So really weird that we go from talking about Ishbosheth and all this detailed information about his soldiers. All of a sudden we have this, oh, by the way, mm -hmm. so... What we're, what's going on here is we're being reminded Saul has another grandson. There's another descendant, another possible heir to the throne that's there. But we're also being told why he's disqualified. Mm -hmm. He can't be a king because he's lame. Right. And so because he can't be a king, he forms, you know, he poses no threat to Ishbosheth or to David. And it also really drives home the fear of David. The idea that the people were so scared of what he might do mm -hmm. that they're willing to go to these extreme lengths to, to, to protect Saul's family. Now, I think one of the things that really stands out is the, the names, Ishbosheth and uh, Mephibosheth. So you've got very similar rhyming Dr. Seuss names. Um, now, if you look for the names in First Chronicles with all of the genealogies, you aren't going to find these two names. You're actually going to find Ishbaal and Meribaal. Um, so we can look at these names and kind of learn a few things. Uh, we know that Bosheth means of shame. Mm -hmm. So Ishbosheth is man of, sh of shame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Mephibosheth means destroyer of shame or destroyer of idols. Okay. So... If we accept these um, positive readings uh, of Mephibosheth and uh, Ishbosheth, they, they really stand on the opposite ends of the spectrum. So okay, you've got this man of shame, and then you've got the guy who destroys shame. And so a little tip-off that we should be looking for something different from Mephibosheth than we should of mm -hmm. Ishbosheth, even though we aren't given any more of Mephibosheth's story at this point in time. Right. And so uh, I'm really, I'm hoping we can get, um, when we get some further into Mephibosheth's uh, story, we need to get Craig Conaway on to talk about that because Mephibosheth's kind of his, his point of uh, focus and emphasis. Mm -hmm. And he's got some really good teachings about how we can apply this to our lives. So I, I like that because, uh, you know, a lot of times we just go through the scripture. And so sometimes having someone remind us this does apply back to us. Right. So, Rechab and Benag, they go into Ishbosheth's house. Uh, this is verse 5, and I'm not reading, I'm just kind of summarizing. And Ishbosheth, he's taking a nap during the day. And when they go into the house, this is verse 6, um, 
they pretend to be there to take wheat. And as Ishbosheth's captains or generals or uh, soldiers, they would have received provisions from a royal storehouse. And their presence would have been completely normal. It, It wouldn't have been at a place for them to be going and saying, you know, we went out and we raided the village and this is our our pay, this is what's due us, so we need to go get it. So verse 7, when they came into the house, as he lay in his room, as in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. So a um, little change of events there. And he took his head and went back by the way of Arabah all night. So they, they immediately uh, go from being, you know, just grabbing the grain to let's kill a guy in his bed and <laughs> let's yeah. take his head. So we'll go ahead and continue with the story and then we'll come back and talk about some of the, the details. So they go back, you know, they ride all night and they get to David's and they give David his head. And they said, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life, the Lord has uh, avenged, the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day on Saul and his offspring. So if you've been reading the whole story from, you know, at least from second Samuel one, you know, this isn't going to end well, right? <laughs> I mean, you, you already have a clue as to what's going on. And so David answered, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of the hand of every adversary? When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news. How much more than when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? So David immediately rejects the premise. Uh, They didn't help. God is the one who's delivered him from every adversary. Right. And I I love the idea. I've been actually reading and looking at a lot of... uh, rejecting the premise of an argument. And, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of times if you just reject the premise of somebody's argument, you're halfway out of it and it's halfway done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, the problem is people don't really argue anymore. They, well, they argue, but they don't argue for, people no longer really argue for the truth. They argue because they want to feel like they're right. They want to hear their words coming out of your mouth. Yeah, yeah, they, they don't. Yeah, they, exactly. They don't want the truth. They don't want anyone else's opinion. Yeah, they they want agreement, and that's. And as we've mentioned many times, agreement often stops the conversation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so we're having well, and we're having those differing ideas, and to talk through them, you can actually find what the right idea or the right course of action is, because you know wisdom is found in a multitude of counselors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mm-hmm. think I read that in a book somewhere. Somewhere, so, yeah. But you know this this story. I mean, obviously, we're reminded of the Amalekite who comes with news of Saul's death. Um, the, the Amalekite that either lied or. Uh, or he actually did kill Saul. Right. And, um, you know, the Amalekite at least killed Saul on the battlefield, and then he brought proof of Saul's death with the, the, head, with the crown and the armlet. And David has seen what Manna and Rechab did as worse. They went into Ishbosheth's house, and, and, you know, he's in bed sleeping, and so the fact that they would desecrate his body to bring proof. Mm-hmm. David is appalled, and you know he even refers to Ishbosheth as a Zedek, which is righteous. He's a righteous man. He's a good mm-hmm. man. You don't you don't mess with this guy. This is a title that's applied to Noah. 
Um, it's a title that was used to describe men worth saving Sodom over. Right. Were there that many Zedeks in the city? Uh, it's applied to God himself in uh, Exodus 9.27. And it's a title Saul used of David. So to call someone a Zedek is a very high compliment. And, you know, notice David doesn't call Ishbosheth the Lord's anointed. That, that's been rescinded. Mm-hmm. He, he mm-hmm. did tell the Amalekite, you know, who are you to stretch out your hand against the Lord's anointed? But Ishbosheth is worthy to live just because he's righteous. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he hasn't, you know, when you look at Ishbosheth's story, he hasn't done much. He's, there's not really a whole lot to, to commend him for. I, I read one commentary and I couldn't find it, but it's like, Ishbosheth is remembered for three things: being made king, uh, sit, you know, ruling in Israel, and and dying to to and dying to go to his fathers. It's like yeah. these are the only three things we know about this guy. And so, we also have the shared theme with with uh, Joab's murder of Abner, striking down a man through through deception and trickery. You know, it's not honorable. And you know, I almost get the sense from what David says if if this had been an honest challenge that he would have been fine. But the fact that it is so underhanded, this is what bugs him. So verse 12, and David commanded his young men and they killed him and cut off their, their hands and feet and hung them beside the pool of Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in his tomb in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. So uh, fully, excusable crime, um, executable crime under the Torah. We have two witnesses. The mm-hmm. the two guys testified. Each, that they did it. Yeah. yeah. They told and on themselves. Exactly. Whereas with the Amalekite, you know, we had that issue that we had to work through whether or not his confession was uh, sufficient to condemn him to death. Now, what isn't supported by the Torah is the mutilation of the body. And if we read this passage in isolation and with our preconceived notions, it's a really confusing passage Mm -hmm. because David's a hero. He's a man after God's own heart, and he is the anointed one. And all of these very true statements about David in our minds often translate into David was perfect. And David's (laughs) not perfect. You know, he's still very much fully human. And he's a product of his culture. Now, he's one who's making radical changes within his kingdom and culture, and he's taking great steps to to bring the kingdom into alignment with what God wants, and he has some prophetic moments where he gets great insight, mm-hmm. but he's still just a human who's fighting to overcome the environment that shaped him. And we shouldn't forget that it wasn't that long ago that when he faced um, Nabal, one of the things we had to question about David was... How much had he been influenced by his time in Saul's house? And this is Saul's relatives who have done this to Ishbosheth. Mm-hmm. So if we zoom out any further, we have to remember that the men he ruled were, were products of their culture. And these men are men that Nabal, they described them as terrorists. Sorry, Nabal described them as terrorists. Right. So, I mean, these are not, you know... Your your proper church guy in his nice little suit and his uh, you know I had too many uh, helpings of peach cobbler at the potluck guy. This is this is a warrior, and you know Israel's become every bit as violent. 
as the nations that surrounded them and oppressed them. This mm-hmm. is why God wanted them to drive the Canaanites out. Because if you remember, you got to go all the way back to Judges 1. It was when Israel stopped driving them out and killing the people they were supposed to kill, and they started taking them as prisoners, that all of a sudden they start doing the things that the Canaanites mm-hmm. had been doing to their prisoners. Um what the king there was Adonai Bezek, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And you know, and this king's view was basically, well, you know, I've done it to a lot of other kings, so I guess it's my turn. And it, it was so normal. He didn't even have the the uh, he he wasn't even upset enough about it to be distraught over his own faith. It was just something that happened. And now Israel is beheading kings. Mm-hmm. So we have to have some kind of of return to who Israel is supposed to be as a nation, because Saul had fostered and embodied brutality in his reign. I mean, he he ruled through violence and intimidation. And so he was very much the king like all other kings. Mm -hmm, He, mm -hmm. He was that guy. And during the years of his reign, this was something he would have fostered within the nation of Israel. So even if the nation hadn't picked it up from the other nations that were surrounding them, now Saul has has made it a part of their culture. Mm-hmm. So David's having to overcome that, and we need to remember, David lived in Saul's house. Yep. So David still has to get rid of these mindsets himself. And when we remember that, Again, you keep going back, and this is why it's so important to read all the stuff in, in context and to go through because you see how this builds. Mm-hmm. It's not just something that happened because somebody flipped a switch. We're talking decades uh, of conditioning. But when we go back to First uh, Samuel in the first part of it, Eli had to be removed because Eli had brought those seeds of Egypt into Israel mm-hmm. with him, and they mm-hmm. were being manifest through his son. And so removing Corrupt leadership, even Israel's corrupt leadership, is a brutal and bloody process. And, you know, that's got some major implications when we want to talk about fast-forwarding to Jesus and Jesus becoming king over the world and manifest through his life, death, and resurrection. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a bloody, brutal process. The difference was, instead of it taking being taken out on the troops, he took it on himself. Right. And so... Um, we, when we look at David's reign, we can see these parallels, and we never want to over overreach. But at the same time, uh, David is set up as one of the the examples of what we should be looking for when we're looking for that returning Messiah. And this makes it so much more easy to understand why the Jews missed Jesus as the Messiah when he arrived because he didn't look like David. Right, and so. We, we have to be, we have to use some care and some discernment as we go through here and trying to figure out how far we take these examples. But I do think that the idea that corrupt leadership, it gets entrenched. Mm-hmm. And it pe- absolutely does. <laughs> people love corrupt leadership, whether or not they, they, they want to say so. As long as corrupt leadership isn't impacting them personally, they adore it. And we can look at this throughout history, and I won't go into a history lesson, but because corrupt leadership, whether we like it or not, it's highly effective. 
it gets the job done because it doesn't care about the rules. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's not just like political leadership. It's also cultural leadership. I mean, you look at Hollywood and again, we can, you know, I know there's a lot of conspiracy theories going on there, but there's, but there is that glamour or lifestyle associated with it that often tends to be immoral. And uh, so that's, you know, that, that's something that uh, <laughs> maybe we, we need can, to do a Patreon special on that. <laughs> maybe we should, but you know, but I'm just saying, you, you know, we, we see that where it, it's not, it, you know, it's like the, well, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And we, you're right. I mean, I, had, I hadn't considered it as in we adore corrupt leadership, but I, you know, it makes sense whenever you slow down and, and think about it. Occasionally my brain kicks over with these little things that I pop out and, it, and it's like, is that right? And then I have to stop and look and process through and figure out if I'm even right in my own thoughts. Sure. But, you know, the, the big point and the big takeaway is David's trying to establish a kingdom that's operating in direct defiance to the morals and ethics of his day. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. I mean, anytime somebody tries to, to change the very fabric of society, which is what you do when you're changing morals and ethics, that that's a painful process for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I say that, we, we really need to consider the depth of what Dave, David's doing. This is a king who can grieve over the death of an enemy. Mm-hmm. He's done it twice now. He's done it actually with the death of Ishbosheth. We're now up to the third time. Uh, this is a kingdom where a god, where where a woman could counsel and guide God's anointed. With Abigail coming out and talking to David and going, "Hey, you need to cool it before you make a mistake." Mm. You know, can you imagine Saul receiving the words of a woman saying, "Dude, you need to calm down." I mean, he probably would have just stabbed her too. Uh, this is a place where compassion could be. Ex- extended to even those who did wrong mm-hmm. and people could find a forgiveness. You didn't find these things in Saul's kingdom. And so, you know, he still has a lot of work to do and he's going to make some mistakes, but we see the groundwork for what we should expect being laid, these expectations being put in place for the entire nation. And so when people in Jesus' time, when they're looking for David, they're looking for, you know, equality in the in the kingdom. They're looking for grace. They're looking for a king who can do all of these things that David did that were so counter to the Canaanite culture because they were living under Roman occupation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when when David kills Banna and Rechab, he's doing it as a warning. He's saying, if you continue to act like Canaanites, you're going to be treated like a Canaanite. And you need to understand these are not the the rules I want to in you know inflict on my nation, but don't make me. You know he's not scared right. to stand up to it. And so you know if life is going to be honored in his nation, then when a life is taken, then a, another life has to be given as a recompense. This is part of Torah law. This goes back mm-hmm. to Noah coming off the ark. You do not spill the blood of humanity because when you spill the blood of humanity, now you have to give your life too. Right. And so uh, this is this is part of the law. And I know there's a lot of debate about whether Christians should. Um, support the death penalty today. The death penalty today is not the same. And I'm not talking about whether we should support it or not. That's a political decision I'm not going into. But what I can say is at this point in time, there are no prisons. 
Right. You don't have a place to hold people who might pose a threat to your society. And food was at a premium for everyone. Mm -hmm. So there is a distinct difference. So the idea of killing someone who posed a threat, and that's what we're talking about when we're killing murderers, someone who can harm someone else and desires to harm someone else, they had to be stopped for the good of society. And there weren't many other options than death. So, uh, you know, we need to be careful to judge the, the rules and the actions of what happens in the Bible by the standards of its time, not our own. So, um, but in David's kingdom, what we're doing is death begets death Mm -hmm. is basically what's being, um, being said. And, and it's being, this, this power is being wielded because yes, death begets death, but it's so that the righteous can live. Right. Because these murderers had killed a righteous man. They killed a Zedek. And so um, when David, though, the, what we find is this contrast, because even when death was politically advantageous for him, he refused to go there. So he, he's been the, he provides that, that contrast where these guys who killed to, for political advancement, and David said, no, I don't even do this. Right. And he's the David's one with the right to, to carry it out. And so if David, God's chosen and God's anointed, the one who's God has said is going to rule over all of Israel, refuses to make the step to take his place, then nobody else has the right to step up and do it on his behalf, which that may actually play into a really interesting teaching on Christianity and how we practice our faith. How, how what mm-hmm. rights, how far do we have, what, sorry. How far should we go in trying to accomplish what we think God wants there to get done? Go. Is that kind of where we're going? Mm-hmm. Okay. That was exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> I just couldn't get the words in my, in, in the proper yeah, order. Who, who, who's the person who who's in charge, and how much are they actually in charge of? It, it, exactly. So, you know, if David's willing to sit and wait, we can, um, we can sit and wait. So... Uh, David buries the uh, the head of Ishbosheth with Abner's body in Hebron. Uh, now this could be some very pleasing symmetry that the the crowned head was buried with the one who made him king. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it could be some pretty poetry where Abner, who watched over Ishbosheth, is watching Ishbosheth over Ishbosheth in death. Um, it could be a little sardonic humor that. Um, Abner's figurehead is buried with him. Um, But, you know, I I think from David's words, probably what we're looking at is David is honoring um, Abner and Ishbosheth by by burying them with their fathers, you know, by burying them. That's what I gathered. It was just. I I assumed it would have just been expected. I mean, if you're trying to honor those people at all, just put them in the family tomb. That's where they belong. Well, and that's that's the thing. In many ways, Abner was probably more of a father to Ishbosheth than Saul ever was. I sure. mean, we never hear of Ishbosheth during Saul's reign, and whenever he does emerge, his name is so connected with Abner's that the two are almost inseparable. And you know, this this leads us to the point where now. Everybody from Saul's house who could have posed a threat to David's reign or stood between David and the throne, they're all gone. And 
the writer presents this as Ishbosheth died, and then all of the events recorded in the rest of chapter four and five. I mean, they just happen with consecutive momentum, and they just keep rolling forward. Mm-hmm. However, there's an issue as there's a five and a half year period where Ishbosheth isn't reigning, and David is still king in Hebron, and he's not king over Israel. So we're, there's some debate on how the timeline plays out because David ruled seven and a half years in Hebron. Ishbosheth ruled two years in uh, the rest of Israel. And so there's five and a half years. We don't know if Ishbosheth died, you know, if it took... At the beginning of that seven, at the end of the seven. Exactly. Where, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, your two options is that you know, the Israelites said, hey, you know, we already had a deal in place. Uh, David was going to be king over all of us, even if Ishbosheth had lived. So let's just make the move. Or um, there could have been some time where they went, hey, David's out to kill anyone who belongs to the house of Saul. And we're, you know, tribal members in, in Benjamin. We need to wait and really weigh his options. Um, you know, so there could have been some some time where you know, Ishbosheth's subjects needed to learn how to trust David because it would have been very normal for a king to go in and kill everyone who had mm-hmm. been loyal to this other king. So, uh, if we read it as David is the the logical next choice, and then it becomes just a done deal that he becomes king. But by the customs of that day, David, like I said, he would have killed everyone, and it would have been it would have taken a while if you just kind of go by trying to put yourself in that situation. But again, the, the Bible isn't very clear. So we also have another problem with this in that the chronology of the next few chapters don't match up exactly with the chron- chronology of Chronicles. Sure. Because Chronicles uh, Chronicles overlaps a lot with the book of Samuel. And this is where it's getting fun to do research because I've got like 20 books because I've got my commentaries on Samuel, my commentaries on Chronicles, my commentaries on Saul, because now we're starting to see all of these books overlap and how they're going to interplay. And I want to bring that in as much as possible because I think this is going to help some people with objections that they have to contradictions in the Bible and to, to see where the Bible might say one thing in one book and another in, in mm-hmm. Samuel, one in Samuel, one in Chronicles, and, and how they actually work together. So our, our basic outline is we have David anointed in, in both books. So, so good so far. David conquers Jerusalem. So still to, going great. But in First Samuel, then we move to uh, Hiram of Tyre. It, he's going to build David a house. Okay. But in Chronicles, we have this list about David's mighty men and the names of who they are and they're, where they're from, which is really interesting. So we'll talk about that because we don't have that in Samuel. Uh, in, then we also have, after the mighty men in Chronicles, the ark is brought from Kirith-Jerim uh, to, to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Oh, but at this point, sorry, it's moved. But the problem is this is when Uzzah dies in Chronicles. Okay. Meanwhile, in 1 Samuel, David is just having more kids. And then we have David's uh, defeat of the Philistines. And when Uzzah dies in Chronicles, then we have David having more kids, and then the Philistines, 
And then finally the ark makes it to Chronicles. But David in 1 Samuel, it's the story of the ark is all one narrative. You don't get that break between Uzzah dying and the final successful leg of the journey to get the ark into Jerusalem. Okay. And so um, Samuel makes it more of a point to give you this kind of sweeping saga where David rises to power and everything he's doing is going well before he introduces this this uh, failure in moving the ark. And the writer of First Chronicles kind of gives you this interwoven picture of how all of these things are happening simultaneously in David's life. And in, in some ways, I actually find if we're looking for historical accuracy yeah. as what was going on, I would think that the writer of Chronicles was actually probably being more true to the actual timeline because, I mean, how many of us in our lives have one thing happening? You know, right. you, usually there's this, this interplay between 20 different things. Well, and it's like Maxie Birch uh, in one of his lectures was talking about, you know, when, when we study history, we get the luxury of being able to study one thing in history. Mm-hmm. And where, again, yeah, people live life like we do. They have, everything's going on. They're fighting wars. They're uh, having kids. Having kids. <laughs> they're doing political things. They're, you know, it's just everything. Trying to be once. involved in church. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of what it is. And so, yeah, it's, it very much is the way we experience life as much how the ancients experienced life just with different technology. Oh yeah. And that's, that's the thing. I mean, now when a lot of people critique this and this is one thing that I always think it's funny how people who critique uh, quote unquote contradictions in the Bible, they always want to make a really big deal. Aha, I found it. I got you. This is why you can't trust your book. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, <laughs> That largely, the church brought that on themselves with a lot of over-the-top <laughs> rhetoric about how there are not any errors in the Bible. And I know we've mentioned it before, but it's just, yeah. we have to, I mean, I think that's worth repeating is because people do forget a lot of the things that, a lot of the guns that the church gets shot with, we hand it over to people. Pretty much. I mean, to, if you well, want to have an analogy, I guess. Honestly, uh, when someone says, ah, the Bible's inerrant, I basically go, you've never done any translation work. I mean, that's kind of where I land on things. So and I'm not saying that you shouldn't trust the Bible because, oh my gosh, there's errors. The content, mm-hmm. what's mm-hmm. presented within it is still reliable because even with this, this discrepancy between First Samuel, or Second Samuel and First Chronicles, yeah, the timeline's different. But it's just the way this guy has chosen to tell the story. Right. And it's the, the information where it does overlap is almost identical. Yeah. A- and by and large, it's so identical that most commentators believe that whoever wrote First Chronicles actually had a copy of Second Samuel to look at. Okay. And so we're going to be looking at where the, the, the writer of Chronicles actually decides to, to change some stuff. And to omit some stuff and add a few details. And we're going to talk about why that's important. And there is some importance there because Samuel's trying to argue one point. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't always give you the information that has to do with the point that the writer of First Chronicles is making. Right. And, you know, anybody who's had kids 
when I explained something to my older daughter, I didn't always tell her the same thing that I told my younger daughter. Sure. Because the things that matter to my older daughter often didn't apply to my younger daughter or vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we need to take into account who the audience was. And there is a major difference between the audience of Samuel and the audience of Chronicles. Mm -hmm. So we're going to, like I said, we're going to talk about those as we come to them. But however, uh, you know, whatever amount of time has passed between uh, the death of Ishbosheth and David becoming king, uh, the the writers of Chronicles and Samuel both agree on the substance of what follows, and that's the important part. So we're going to move into chapter five, verse one. It says, "Then all the tribes of Israel came to David of Israel's not Israel, not plural there." Um, all of Israel's tribes. Uh, yeah, you know, you're trying to do the possessive on both uh, ends. Yeah, <laughs> it's been the the allergy season is still attacking guys, and it is brutal. But anyway, uh, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. So all the tribes, for the first time in a seven and a half years, the, the nation is starting to unify. Mm-hmm. And David is sought out to become their king. So um, this is going into the third time David is going to be proclaimed king. First time was with Samuel and his brothers. Second time was with the tribe of Judah, and mm-hmm. now we have him over all of uh, the tribe of, of Israel. And it's interesting that we have this progression from where he's anointed king with his actual biological flesh and blood brothers mm-hmm. who basically wanted to no- ignore him. And now he's being proclaimed the flesh and blood of a people who've sought him out to be their king. So you see this total reversal in that. Right. Um, Saul was declared king three times, the first time with Samuel, and then again at Mizpah when they drew the lots and Saul was among the baggage. And then there's a public acclamation of his kingship after his uh, defeat of the Ammonites. Mm-hmm. So each time we have this, this three. Now, Saul earns the approval of the people, and um, the people who demanded that, you know, that those who had doubts that Saul should lead, I mean, you go think back, I know this has been several episodes ago, they basically said, uh, you know, that Saul shouldn't lead. So the people who now agree that Saul should be king, they wanted to kill them. And Saul actually refused to kill anyone who doubted his right to lead because God has worked salvation of Israel. Now, David is proclaimed king after, a, not after a successful battle, but rather he's been declared king because he says God has, has um, worked salvation in his life. Mm-hmm. You know, he, God had delivered him from his adversaries. And he, he demonstrates this truth not in battle and not in fighting, but actually in his refusal to fight. So it's this kind of weird reversal where Saul had to earn the acceptance of the people by winning this battle. David actually, it's in refusing that he, yeah, isn't that crazy? Because he had three different guys he could have gone up again. He could have gone up against Saul. He could have gone up against Abner, and he could have gone up against Ishbosheth. And those three times he didn't. So there's there's a lot of play with the number three there, but the, also these these interplays where you see how David is already proving himself to be different from Saul again just by what he refuses to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, verse two, and this is still the people talking. It says, in times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be 
shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So the people cite those times. They remember when David was Saul's general. They remember that he had led troops out into battle and he had brought them back in. And what they're saying is, you took us out, Mm -hmm. but not only did you take us out to battle, you were such a good commander, you could bring us home from that battle. Right. And I think we kind of miss the the fact that there is this element that the people are acknowledging David's skill because we aren't familiar with this kind of, uh, you know, with this idiom that would have been used. So a, a general who can bring you home from battle is a million times better than one who can just take you out into battle. And I, I could take anybody out into battle right now. Follow me. We're probably going to get killed, but, right. you know. <laughs> yeah. Taking an army into war is easy. <laughs> exactly. So, um, getting them out, not so much. Yeah. And so the, the fact that the people remember this and this is why they think it's good um, is really interesting. But they also cite a prophecy, and we haven't heard this prophecy. We're so used to thinking of David as, as the shepherd king, as the one who, uh, with the, all that shepherd, shepherdry, shepherdry imagery. Uh, shepherd imagery? Yeah, whatever. Okay, I make up words when I like to make up words. And so, anyway. It's not helpful. Uh, sometimes it is. It's not well, often, but anyway. Not in this moment. <laughs> so, <laughs> but we, you know, we do. We think of David as being that shepherd, and we think, you know, Psalms 23, all of that, that mm-hmm. comes to mind. But I didn't even realize we have never heard David referred to as a shepherd until we get to this verse. And now all of a sudden the people are saying, hey, God said you're going to be our shepherd. Hmm. So they're citing a prophecy that has not been recorded. So this means the talk around Israel and the things that are being said about David, we don't even have all of it. Imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed king, David king over all Israel. Yeah. Well, so, w- one more point real quick okay. on the, uh, the hearing about stuff that's not been recorded. It's like, are the people who are critical about the stuff, have they never lost a slip of paper? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's not like it's, you know, every piece of paper is always well-preserved and accessible and cataloged. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I often think too. Or a whole book. I've lost whole books. Oh yeah, I mean, very frustrating. That yeah, and the, <laughs> when you tear the entire place apart, I know I had a copy of. Uh, and, and the flip side's true too, because there's this also this really weird, uh, ideology that's out there that just it cracks me up, where anything that's old and written down must be true. Right. Like every person who lived in two thousand or you know two thousand years ago was somehow inherently trustworthy. Right. I, I don't even understand that mindset. And you know, I would often talk to my students uh, when I was teaching, and I'm like, you know, if you if somebody went forward in time, you know, three or four thousand years, and they look back and they started unearthing documents that we had from this time period, and you know, would would 
some of the internet sources hmm. be considered, <laughs> oh, look at their history. Look at how crazy they were. Look at what they believed. Yeah, or, ancient tabloids. Yeah, I mean, it, it just, it doesn't work. So, you know, basically anything that's true of us as a race today is true of people back then. Yeah. And so you've got to, you know, use some, some common sense. But... um yeah, so basically they get together and they, they back to our, our Bible stuff, um, they they make this covenant and we're not told what's in the covenant. We just have some speculation. But uh, one of the things that the, the sages believed was in this covenant was David agreeing, hey, you're not going to kill us. Right. You know, which makes a lot of sense in the, the context of that time. It's helpful to, you know, not kill people you're in covenant with. Yeah, so I, at the very least it was implied. You know, I, I I don't think we can get around the idea that they probably did need some some reassurance. Um, so verse four, David was thirty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for forty years. So now we know David dies when he's seventy. So we've got a nice little mm-hmm. um, timeline there. And this is the typical formulaic pronouncement concerning the reign of kings. We're going to see this over and over again as we yep. go forward. Uh, it also tells us that. 10 to 12 years have passed since David was first anointed because, you know, we talked about when, Sa- when Samuel goes to David and why isn't he out fighting with his brothers and he was probably too young to be part of the army. And so this is probably the reason why he was there. So if he's 30 at this point in time and he was too young, he, he's 18 to 20 years old probably. Mm-hmm. And so 10 to 12 years. I mean, most of us can't wait five minutes for God to answer a prayer before we start taking matters into our own hand. And yet here David has been willing to wait and he's gone out of his way to wait. And he's punished people who started getting ahead of him and trying to reclaim mm-hmm. the throne for him. So um, anyhow, so the next verse, verse five, uh, it offers some math even I know doesn't work. So, you know, we can offer some possible solutions. So let's just read what it has to say, and then we'll talk about it. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel and Judah 33 years. So um, literally, verse 5 tells us David reigns 40 and a half years, not 40 years. So we have two explanations. Uh, one, that David was not in power during the six months that Absalom, his son, rebels against him. We're going to get there. But there's six months that, that Absalom has, quote, unquote, the throne. So uh, the, the 40 and a half would be the overarching time, but there were six months in there that were he was out of power, so that's okay. not included. Uh, the second is that he reigned 32 and a half years in Israel, uh, sorry, in Jerusalem, but it's rounded up to 33 out of respect for the greatness of Israel. Yeah. And so, you know, the, in all probability, it, it probably just is the Hebrew tradition of going with the closest round number. I, I mean, it makes sense to me. It's the idiom of the time. But these, again, these are, these are the things that are held up as reasons not to believe the Bible. So when you t- hear the Bible full of contradiction and people making us think about it, actually have them tell you what they're talking about, because this is the kind of thing a lot of them are referring to. Right. And then you have to ask, is this really something that I'm supposed to, to be upset about? And the other question you have to ask, would an ancient reader see this as a contradiction? Right. Right. Because 
a Hebrew person reading this would just say, oh, this is how we talk. This is how our people explain things. What What's wrong with you? Why are you making yeah, a big deal out of it? And so far, we've covered a lot of, uh, you know, apparent contradictions in the Bible. None of them have an outlandish explanation. Right. So, granted, we haven't done every single one, you know, but... We haven't avoided the ones we've come across. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my faith hasn't been uh, shaken by this. So, um, now, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the, if you want to look this up, this is 4Q, um, and I forget, the 4Q Samuel is the uh, scroll it's on. First... And First Chronicles, if you go to First Chronicles 11 and verse 3, which talks about the same area. And if you read Josephus, it actually omits all three of those accounts of, first, of this incident omit verses 4 and 5 because they don't want to include the contradictory evidence. Because that's, yeah, that's how scrupulous the, the scribes and the, the rabbis were about making sure the stories did flow and they were correct. Because... Believe it or not, the Bible had editors. Right. And so, uh, and maybe at some point we'll talk about evidence of that. But so, yeah, so it, it, we do have, like I said, four different accounts of the same incident mm -hmm. and four separate accounts. And a lot of people want to get hung up on the fact, well, verses four and five are missing from these other three accounts, and we only have one with verses four and five. That's missing the forest for the trees because we have the greater story in all four accounts. Yes, the, these, this little bit of math is left out, but the overall, the content of the story is present. And I think we should be so excited that we have four accounts of the same story that are so close together Yeah. that, wow, this is something we should be paying attention to. So anyway, that's my little rabbit trail. So verse six, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off thinking David cannot come in here. So <laughs> this is a weird verse. And uh, man, this is where we start getting into some background of things. And so we're going to talk about who the Jebusites were real quick. And um, there's three theories about who the Jebusites were. Uh, one is that these are the historic um, inhabitants of Jabus, the city. So hence called the Jebusites. Makes sense. The second uh, possibility is that they're Philistines who have taken up re residence in the city of Jabus. Okay. In which we know that the Philistines are living in the towns of Israel. Uh, and we know that people are often referred to by where they live, not necessarily by ancestry. So mm -hmm. that does kind of work. A third uh, possibility is they're Hittites who are now called Jebusites because they had taken up residence in the city of Jabus even before the Philistines had moved in. And so um, we're going to have to spend some time talking about what we know about the inhabitants of Jabus mm -hmm. because Jabus is the city of Jerusalem. And as anyone who knows their Bible, Jerusalem's going to play a central role in all of the things that happen yep. <laughs> from here on out. And we do have uh, some grace in the fact that we have mentions of Jerusalem apart from the Bible. So we have some other uh, 
information we can bring in, which uh, the Amarna tablets, which were about 1500 BC, mm-hmm. so not too far off from this time, actually. Uh, these were letters that were written to Pharaoh from overseers that he'd placed in the conquered lands of Canaan whenever the Egyptians were over Canaan as a whole. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the language of these tablets, surprisingly, it, it's not Egyptian, but it's Akkadian, and that's it, a cuneiform. So if y'all guys have ever seen that, that's what Akkadian uh, looks like. Uh, and it's got some Canaanite words and phrases tossed in to this Akkadian document to an Egyptian pharaoh. So, you know, it's a lot of fun for translators uh, to to kind of filter through. Now I say document, it's actually a collection of documents. It, it spans 30 years. Right. Um, there's 382 of them in total. So this is a significant bit of information about this time period and about the geography and the people. And there's evidence that before the Egyptians took over Jabus, that it was a... Um, there was a strong Babylonian influence. So if Babylon had not directly conquered it, it was there were Babylonians who were living there and were influencing the architecture and all that good stuff. And that is um, most notably evidenced in a temple that we can find there to Ninib is what I've got on my notes. Let's hope that's right. Uh And so, um, but we're going to talk about when we come back, we're going to talk about what the Bible has to tell us about this city. Okay. And um, because it really is, it's a fascinating city because not only does it play a crucial role within the Bible, it, it is a crucial city for so many religions. And which is kind of odd that so many religions have said, this is our city and right. this is the center of what we believe. And uh, Christianity and Judaism is no different. So uh, we'll leave it with that little bit of a cliffhanger and why David needed to conquer this particular place. Okay. Well, that sounds good. Well, um, I hope everyone out there is enjoying the conversation. If you are, uh, let us know. Raven Creek SC on all the social media. Microphone Creek- attacked. Yeah. RavenCreekSC.com will get you to this show uh, and hopefully some show notes in the future. Uh, I'm getting there, guys. We're working on solutions, I promise. (laughs) uh, But yeah, be part of the conversation. Hit us up. And uh, between now and then, I guess we will see you on the internet. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.